0: Hello, it's Vikas Porta, Chairman of the Vaki Foundation.
1: You are listening to a session from our Global Education and Skills Forum, a place where leading
2: politicians, businesses, philanthropists, activists, and of course, the world's best teachers share, debate, and discover new ways for education to
1: transform our world. Keep the global conversation going and share your thoughts on the topics discussed
2: with the hashtag GESF.
3: Uh, I'm from Ozi and Social Investments in Turkey. And I'm joined by uh, three wonderful speakers. Uh, I have on my right uh, John Goodwin, who is the CEO of LEGO Foundation. And then next to him is Mariana Luz, uh, CEO of Maria Cecilia Foundation in Brazil. And then Shahira Ahmed Bazari is the managing director of Yayasan Hasana, have I pronounced that, in Malaysia. And uh, we were meant to be joined by the Chancellor of University of Nairobi, Kenya, but I believe that she's uh, she's not actually here. So uh, unfortunately, we won't be able to, to benefit from her insights, but I'm sure that my other speakers will will more than make up for, uh, for her not being here. So um, the way I'm going to do this is that I've banned all the speakers from using any slides. So it's literally going to be a conversation, and we want to keep it as quick and... Uh, as much movement as possible, but I'll start off with just asking everyone the same question. And you know that this panel is within the SDG4 track uh, as one of the five pillars or four pillars of the the conference uh, this year. So, I'm going to start off, and I'm going to start off with Shahira on my left, uh, asking you what are you doing as a
1: philanthropist to achieve SDG4? Okay, thank you, Ella good afternoon everyone um so um we're a malaysian foundation uh, called the hasana foundation just uh, recently being set up in july 2015 um, and we're a foundation of the sort of sovereign fund of malaysia which is kazana national um, and uh, a lot of the work that we've been doing on education preceded the foundation actually through corporate responsibility initiatives of the shareholder of kazana Um, And one of the critical component of the mandate of Kazana was uh, human capital development for the country um, as well as uh, development development of leadership pool for the country in the future. So one of the things that uh, Kazana did at that time was to look at, they did an entire sector study to see where could we have the most impact on human capital development for the country. Um, and at that time, they chose to do work in uh, the primary and secondary school because that's where the largest chunk of children and future generation are and uh, to start influencing them from 7 to around about 17. Um, so we uh, worked with the Ministry of Education through a private public sector partnership and co-created a program to help implement their blueprint Uh, So it's it's called the Trust School Programme, it's similar to a charter school except that the schools remain with the Ministry, it doesn't become uh, sort of private. So we are ten years down that journey and perhaps a little later we could um, share some of the learnings there. But over and above the sort of system kind of work that we're doing with the Ministry. uh, We also do many other co-curriculum activities around uh, You know, mental health and retraining of school counselors at schools, STEM and STEAM and arts education, environmental education. So, there's quite a lot of other components of uh, full sort of content that goes to kids over and above the more structural type work that we're doing in the past. hone in
3: on SDG four? Do you want to say a couple of words about
1: that? Yeah, so when we look at the SDG four, I think. you know i think we're doing almost 80 percent of all the subcategories of sdg4 um, and how we we plugged in the sort of national reporting mechanism uh through the un system and reporting that different kind of work that we do on on sdg4 right
4: so yeah so thank
3: you thank you john do you want to take up that question what are you doing for sdg4 as a philanthropist
4: yeah so at the lego foundation uh, our mission is to twofold to redefine play and reimagine learning, and that involves us in the context of redefining play, uh, working on societal 's perception of what the role of play is in children 's development, really amplifying the neurological development that 's taken place over the course of the last ten years that links uh, neurological development with uh, particularly early childhood play. Uh, and the opportunity to lay the foundations for the skills that are going to be so critical in the future, mm-hmm. and then reimagining learning in the context of how children learn, uh, and from that understanding, then translating that through into our education systems, primarily primary education, uh, to um, help ensure that we 're providing the right learning environments in our schools, because, as the World Bank said in their two thousand and eighteen report schooling does not equal learning. So we're really focused on that quality aspect of SDG4 and really helping defining what that looks like and then move on to how to do the implementation. So we have a focus on 4.2 in terms of early childhood development uh, where we have programmatic activities and research activities in that early uh, early stage Mm -hmm. development. And then we also have a a focus on the quality of education systems and how to lift those up to equip children with the skills they need for the future.
3: Brilliant, thank you. Mariana, same question to you. Thank you, Ayla. Thanks for
5: being here. Um, I work for a foundation, Maria Cecília, in Brazil, that is fully focused on early child development. And uh, and that is the case of 4.2, which John just mentioned. And what that says is that we are willing, we need to guarantee that we're going to provide every boy and every girl in the world with access to quality pre-primary education and care. So those two things are, is, are exactly the two things that we're focusing on, care and pre-primary education, the quality of that. And why is that? Because, uh, because of the second part of what that SDG 4.2 says. Because this is what's going to have kids ready to learn during their primary school years. And and that's the base of everything. That's the base of kids. Our, our purpose within the foundation is to develop a child, to develop society. And, and that's what we're aiming for when we're looking at those first early years of development. Because it's during the first early years of development that you create, you're creating the basis. So our programs are focused on, um, Pushing public policy making, pushing private sector, pushing social society to actually uh, drive uh, energy initiatives and public policies in the case of Brazil to guarantee that that happens to every kid in Brazil and as you know Brazil is a uh, country with many social challenges with a lot of inequality and when we talk about the most vulnerable kids in Brazil that's when the access to those things, do not get what that's when even when the access gets to, we don't have the quality, and that's what we're fighting for, and that's how we're tackling for yeah.
3: So, let me just carry on with you then, Mariana, because you've uh, that, that leads into my my second question about uh, I mean, the, the title of this panel is uh, Giving Money Does Giving Money Away Work? So, tell, tell us a little bit more about how your organization approaches your philanthropy and. Is it just about giving away money?
5: No. And in no case. How,
3: how, when you do give away money, how do you give it away, and what are your sort of like measures? And similar question to uh, you as well. Good.
5: Uh, we are structured to, in the beginning of the organization, let me just give you a little bit of context, because then you understand. The foundation was created 54 years ago, so we've been. Uh, we've been running for a while we've been here for a while and but the focus was not early childhood development it was uh, hematology Maria Cecilia was a girl uh, that died at age 13 and her dad left part of his uh, fortune to create a foundation to really um, help leukemia kids that were struggling in Brazil but also to help the science behind that and how would the science develop how would the labs uh, be useful, so even you know, helping with the infrastructure in labs and universities, but also the research. And I think that that science-based approach was very important to the foundation when it, it was. We decided for the next stage of the foundation. The next stage of the foundation became uh, started in two thousand and seven. Uh, so that's when we we chose early childhood development after hematology and leukemia studies. But what did we find out de- then? That you know. Brain development is such an important part of a baby's life and of that kids during the first years. But that's such a scientific story, right? And uh, if you, it's, there's so much evidence, but they're, they're kind of hard. They're not soft stuff. So our main purpose in the beginning was to translate that science into what people could read, understand, and actually change behavior in their daily lives within their families. And when you talk about changing behaviors within a family, you're talking about a very sensitive matter mm-hmm. because of course a mother and a father know what they're doing. But we just wanted to bring up how could they do that more or more effectively? Because during those years, that's the first years, that's when the kids learning rapidly, but you know, immensely fast. That's what rapidly means here. This is like, you know, so many words, so many connections in the brain and all the plasticity, and we're trying to show that that's part of that development. So, and that's just the context, just so you understand, so we focus a lot on the science and then Mm. funding research and funding a lot of the academics that were doing that kind of translation of what that hard science could become soft material to induce better practices for families and governments and and companies at the end of the day, because private sector is also very important because it can induce beneficial practices and policies for the families as well that will benefit the child. So so we're focusing on um, training a lot of those uh, key stakeholders in those different segments of society to, to make them aware And make them grasp that information to actually change the policy within their domain of action and uh, but then we're funding research and then we're funding a lot of models so what we do is that we look at the world and we see what the world has uh, best out there in terms of models that are being used in different communities and then we bring them to Brazil and when you talk about Brazil it's a very diverse country as well. So we have different Brazils within Brazil. So we have to adjust whatever that model is, that international model and best practice is, to that specific location. So we, we do a, a lot of advocacy in the public, uh, uh, federal level, but also in the local level with the mayors and with the cities so that they can uh, actually understand translate and adjust whatever they have to that reality so it's basically the the leadership training for these key stakeholders the science-based approach and then the advocacy piece.
3: so I'm gonna come back to the uh, uh, advocacy piece a little bit later but John I mean, you obviously believe that giving money away works because you just made a massive grant, or you've uh, pledged a massive grant to the Rohingya communities in, in Bangladesh—one hundred million dollars for those of you that don't know. So, kudos to uh, to John and the LEGO Foundation for that. Um, and your foundation has also been very focused on learning through players you just described. But some may say that this is, uh, you know, it's too big of a grant in one. Area or in one part of the the, the world, uh, and what do you say to that? What what was it that brought you to that to the, to the decision to say this is where, we're not only going to be focused in terms of our uh, our area of intervention, but also our geographical area and the particular community that we want to reach.
4: Yeah, yeah, we've been really inspired actually by uh, Mariana's organisation as to how they're approaching the ecosystem investments that they're doing. Uh, because we've gone through a a journey um, of our own in in the foundation where we were a traditional grant giver. And then we went to a period where we were programmatic designers and looking to be thought leaders uh, in the area of child uh, development. And now where we're evolving to is a a position where we uh, are taking the view that we really need to understand the ecosystems in which we are dispersing our money and looking to find ways in which we are enabling uh, the implementers on the ground with the tools that they need in order to be successful mm. to yield the outcomes for the child. Uh, now, in the, in the case of that uh, large grant that you were referring to, uh, the MacArthur uh, program preceded us, uh, and they went through quite a refining process Uh, through their Fantastic Hundred and Change um, intervention, where they had looked at uh, a wide range of of different opportunities, and then they'd focused in on this particular area Mm -hmm. of humanitarian intervention in early childhood. Mm -hmm. And through that work, they had identified uh, a great ecosystem structure to help in the Syria crisis uh, for children in early childhood. We were looking at how to reach children in early childhood and humanitarian settings and saw this example uh, and saw the fact that they had done that ecosystem yeah. work and wanted to amplify and replicate that in the Rohingya crisis. Uh, so that's really why we made that intervention because that hard work had been done. Yeah. Plus, there was a crying need out there with this uh, disaster yeah. uh, on the uh, Bangladesh border. Was it a
3: collaborative effort with the MacArthur and, their, uh, and the groups there, or is it just that you saw, you saw their model and you said that you wanted to replicate the same model? What, tell me a little bit about the partnership yeah, we, or the collaboration, then, because we often talk about you know, collaboration within the philanthropic sector and how we need more of it, so if you could just expand a little bit upon that.
4: Yeah, We, we had a really uh, great dialogue with, uh, with the MacArthur Foundation to help uh, understand uh, the elements of what it was that they were funding and how we could take the best parts of that, put it to work in the Rohingya crisis, uh, but also cross-fertilize across from what would happen in that, in that humanitarian setting to also what was happening to MacArthur. So we weren't looking to just uh, completely duplicate, but also amplify to the, as much as possible and uh, really enhance the collaboration. Mm. Building those bridges of understanding across the implementers.
3: So, that's going to bring me into Shahira. Um, I mean, Shahira, you described in your opening comments that, uh, you know, as a national foundation, you're working across multiple arenas from education to arts to community development to public spaces. Um, I mean, is it possible to do good in all of these areas? Do you think sometimes maybe you're spreading yourselves too thin? Shouldn't philanthropists really try and hone in and focus on where they think they can make the biggest difference? What's been your rationale behind that? Yeah,
1: So that's a good question. Uh, We're now about, like I said, three and a half years and we're asking ourselves that question as well. Because by the time I get to my fourth focus area, you know, I probably lost everyone because there's just so much in each of those pillars that we work on, whether it's education or community, environment, arts, research, public spaces, so on and so forth. Um, so, so I just wanted to... Um, so the way in which we're kind of trying to aggregate this or pull this all together seems to always end up in two places. It's either in a school environment mm. where the kids are, or in a family unit where the family is. You know, women livelihood programs and reskilling the mom or the dad, the youth, um, and uh, that's, you know, that requires vocational training. So we, we see the kids in school and we also see them in the community. So I think that's been the benefit for us in having so many focus areas because the kids that we don't address in schools because they're in school, great. But when we went to, when we go to the community, we see those that are not in schools, the 25% that are actually getting left behind after 15 because they didn't get through yeah. some exams, and they're the ones in the community and you get to see them there. So that's been uh, helpful from an impact and programmatic perspective, but from a communications and, and communicating your collective impact, that's been quite challenging. Um, and um, so the way in which we are kind of kind of pulling it all together, what we call our strategic levers of impact, very uh, uh, similar to what Luz was talking about around, we look at impact in three ways. One is what we call increase, which is basically scale. So we measure the collective number of schools, teachers, communities, geographical span, all of that. So increase is what we call it. So we we measure scale. The second sort of uh, lever to impact is what we call innovation. So a lot of the work that we do is actually demonstrating or testing or funding new methods and methodologies in schools or in community empowerment or in child protection, even in environmental protection and just pulling all of those together. Um, And uh, as a foundation, I think we uh, you know, you ask, is giving money enough? I, I, my answer to that is giving money is the easiest thing to do. <laughs> but the harder part is actually, you know, building capacity, monitoring and evaluation, and re- just ensuring that you actually have those, uh, those impacts. So, so a large part of what we do, actually, very early on in our journey, grant making became, you know, a well-oiled run machine, you know, very fast in our journey that was just happening you know we were just giving wow. out grants and the and the, our journey then became harder around advocacy and stakeholder engagement and mm. shaping the kind of proposals that come in you know so uh, so beyond just giving money we spend a lot of time building capacity of our partners mm-hmm. we spend a lot of time convening and getting other donors to come to the table, other NGOs that work, child, you know, children NGOs, the first time we convened them, have not even sat in the same room together to talk about yeah. the issues that they're working on. You know, they all speak to the same minister, they all are advocating for slightly nuanced policies, but they, it's so hard to sit together and work together. So, so innovate, so inf- increase, innovate, and then the last part of the work that we do is influence, what we call really around advocacy and influencing and uh, not all of our projects and initiatives require advocacy and public policy but there are some and uh, you know we're going through that journey of trying to kind of just aggregate a lot of these things that we're trying to do
3: yeah it's but, interesting i mean all three of you have sort of touched upon influencing and advocacy and ecosystem so i'm going to sort of draw that out a little bit because there is a there is a di- big debate going on uh, about philanthropists having too much influence uh, on the, the policy process, because they're closer to power and they have access to it. And, um, I mean, do you think that philanthropists should be more concerned with, uh, with individual welfare and maybe programs, as opposed to policy making? And what is that, that balance that we can find? Is there, is there a sweet spot? Uh, do you think that the, the criticisms about some philanthropists having too much power and too much access is is well-founded. So John, why don't you start off and others can jump in.
4: Yeah, um, it is a hot debate at the moment. I think uh, from our vantage point, it's really important that um, you have feedback systems both from those that you're looking to affect, uh, and that needs to shape uh, your dialogue that you're then having with key decision makers. Uh, because it is a very privileged position that you come into as a philanthropic organization uh, with a lot of funding. Uh, and I think it's uh, quite easy to get uh, overly narrow and perhaps um, lose sight of the fact uh, that you're looking to, to change the lives of children. So therefore, it's very important that you have that connectivity uh, to parents, teachers and an understanding of what their needs are before you go into the office of a Minister of Education uh, and really ensure that you are speaking from a position not of one of isolated parochialism, but uh, an informed point of view uh, where you are bringing some of the stakeholders into into that office. And I think that's really essential.
3: So I'm going to ask Mariana how she does that within her organization. How do you sort of like make sure that you're you're bringing the collective voice of the people that you were trying to serve. But before that, I'm just going to challenge John a little bit. Have you ever found yourself in a position, because I certainly have, That <laughs> you have you end up sort of trying, you're, you're defending your position and your program and, your, and you become so vested in whatever it is that you've worked so hard to create that you just want to push that. Have you ever found yourself in that position?
4: Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, and I think that's... And
3: what have you done to sort of like overcome those feelings of...
4: Yeah, I think you have to make sure you're setting yourselves the right objectives. Uh Because so often, you'll set yourself a key performance indicator or an outcome, and that will drive you. But that outcome will be one step removed from the ultimate benefit that you're looking to generate. And that removal blinkers you. So. As an example, we're looking to develop the skills of children and help them be creative, engaged, lifelong learners in that process. Uh, but on the, on the way to that, we're looking to systemically reach children with are learning through play. And that's a narrower lens that can mm-hmm. lead us to push our solution into those situations that are not appropriate. Uh, so that's where you've got to keep yeah. making sure that you're getting calibrated into the environment and the community that you're looking to influence.
3: So how do you do it, Mariana? Before before I tell you how we do it,
5: I'm just going to go back to the question, the concept of it a little bit. Because I think it's important for us to keep in mind while we're doing this that government has one role and that we have another. So I think that that's the first step to Mm -hmm. not mix it up. And I think that there's a lot of need to philanthropists and to the social sector being active and acting on it. So I think that... I mean, if we look at the world, the SDGs are here. And are we about to achieve the SDGs in, in, in 2030? Mm-hmm. It, it's challenging, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone in this room would say, no, no, no. We're on it. We're certain. It's going to yeah. happen. So I mean, if we're not at that stage yet, it means that the world still has a lot of social problems that that we need more people acting on it. But we need them to act in whatever it is, the pos- the role that they have in the different positions that they occupy. So I think you okay. said that. Uh, what is the foundation doing? I think that we have been able to really identify what, uh, what is the role that we want for ourselves within that scope of, which, which of each other's role. And I think that when we did that, we have a very specific strategic planning with goals that are public policy goals. We have goals for the cause. We have goals for early childhood development in Brazil. My, my strategic planning is not about the foundation or projects. So, but then every project that I have follows within that goal. It has to follow within the goal. Okay. Otherwise, I'm not doing what I want for the cause in the next ten years. So that's how we have uh, build a structure to, uh, you know. Uh, we make mistakes, and obviously we do that all cool. the time. And sometimes we get too attached to projects that are not in that place. And then, but we have to have the discipline to and, and the flexibility to go and say, no, 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 this book is amazing, but funding this book, it's not going to take me there. And and sometimes it hurts people inside the company, and you have to deal yeah. with that as well, you know, because people, your team is frustrated. And it, and it's a, it's but cool. it's an extra. It's an intense exercise of discipline and flexibility to whatever that big goal is because at the end of the day you want to aim for the cause and then I think that we within the the social sector we're looking at uh, are we that 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 first question that you also mentioned is our money creating the impact that we want and it's hard to measure that it's hard to measure Mm -hmm. that it's hard to tackle that and uh, but then we have to create mechanisms of evaluation and of uh, measuring those impacts and I usually like to say within the foundation that we might not be able to measure 100% but as long as we begin and we set examples for 10% for 15 we get to 50% we are closer to 100 and, and that's a start.
3: Absolutely and I will come back to the question of measurement and impact because I know that's something that's uh, on many people's minds but just to, to hone in a little bit can you give me a couple of examples because you know, uh, John said that he tries to make sure that he's calibrated uh, by ensuring that you know he's in touch with the uh, with the children's needs and the uh, the families that it tries yeah. how, how do you do, how do you do that? you know I, I understand that you talked about your team and the frustration sometimes you may suffer mm-hmm. but yeah. how does that process work? Is it about you going out into the field and asking individual questions? Yeah. How do you make that work? To 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 make sure that when you go to the minister that you're not just talking on behalf of your foundation but
5: I think through coalition. I, it's just that I, you, you cannot just go to the minister. I mean, you're not one voice. If you do that, you're, you're, you're alone or without back, you know, backup from uh, the community of uh, organizations that are with you in this. Mm. You're probably just going to be disturbing the minister. So uh, I think we're, we have, as social a social sector, we have to be very conscious of that role that you know you have to represent a minimum of organizations that support that cause before you call the ministry and ask for for uh, their time. They're busy. They have to do Mm. things, and we cannot be distractions. We have to be affected. We have to have a proposal that it's representative. And to have the legitimacy, you have to be part of a coalition. You have to be part of a bigger program that it's looking of impacting that cause. So I think the way we did this, obviously, sometimes, and and then you have to also be in the position to find yourself sometimes as the leader that is going to be in that meeting. Sometimes as one of the organizations that is not going to be that is still going to be in that meeting but yeah. it's not going to be leading that meeting and sometimes you're not even going to yeah. be there because what's important is that the message gets there the mm-hmm. best way possible to go through and i think that we have uh, learned we have a lot of learning s- lessons in the past 12 years in that regard because we've been doing advocacy for the past 12 years as well yeah and we but then remember we do that from uh, like i try to explain in the beginning our, our the way we do it we do it influencing stakeholders so you all, by influencing and, and in training uh, key stakeholders for the past 12 years, uh, well, eight years that we have in a specific training, uh, we have 500 people that are key stakeholders on, in the sector that are dris- distributed. And these people have deep knowledge about early childhood education. So some things, the public policies come out of them, not directly of us, but and then yeah. we try to support them along the way. So those have been uh, key ways to also find that sponsor that champion of the cause within in a specific position then we go and we back them up as a coalition as a couple of organizations and there are not that many in brazil that are focused entirely yeah. on early childhood development so i'm not talking about huge um number like there yeah. is an education but then uh because uh, then one one specific aspect of early childhood education is that you're ta- you have to talk about to three ministers I have to talk to the Minister of Education, yeah. the Minister of Citizenship, which is here at this event, and he's one of our champions, so we love that, and the Minister of Health. Yeah. So, uh, when you're talking about early childhood development, it's about the child being the at the forefront of the cause. Yeah. So, they're the ones that are the, the, you know, the important key elements. So yeah. you're not gonna deal with that and you're not gonna take care of the care and the pre-primary education that the SDG mentions if you don't talk to these three spheres of government. And whoever has worked with government before, you know that it's hard to get people within government to talk sure. about themselves. So one of our efforts is actually to you know, put them at the same table.
3: Yeah, yeah. that's great, thank you. Um, Shahira, I'm going to change track a little bit with you. Um, and this is a conversation that you know some of us have been having uh, online, offline. Uh, and it's something that I've been grappling with personally. This, uh, the new buzzword around systems change and systemic change. And the other day I was talking to someone and I said, you know, can someone please explain to me <laughs> what the difference is between taking a program to scale and systems change? And, so, and can you have systems change um, without government buy-in, or should you? Is it systems change if you, ha- if you don't have government uh, being a part of the equation? So, I mean, I, I don't know. It's, yep. it's something that I'm, uh, I'm enjoying speaking, uh, speaking about with different people and learning. Uh, I certainly haven't found the answer, so I'd, I'd love to hear your,
1: your thoughts. Yep. So, um, I've always struggled with that question as well. It's been sort of like my obsession uh, for for a while now, trying to figure out this word. I have to say, I mean, although I come from a national sort of foundation, working with government is not my most favourite thing. It just takes so much out of you to actually kind of work that way. Um, But I heard a speaker, I heard this somewhere. They said, you know, uh, well, and I need to quote this person, says that, you know, government is like part it's 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 like a, a family member it's like that dysfunctional family mem- member that you have that you meet every year for thanksgiving or whatever you've got to deal with it right you've got okay. to kind of work with them if you have a certain expectations in in reaching scale so actually i had an epiphany to be very honest because, Oh, good you chef. know <laughs> being here because now i feel that you know you really got to find a way to work with government you need to understand Uh, where they're coming from. So, uh, one of the things, if I could just share, uh, the project that I talked about, the Trust School. Trust School started in 2008. We worked with government. It was co-created with government because it was supposed to be a model that private sector helped co-create, that once we've demonstrated that it worked, that government was supposed to take it on. So, uh, we committed to do 220 schools There are 10,187 schools in Malaysia. There's no way private sector is going to take over public education system, so we had to work with government. So fast forward, and and just to give you some idea, the Trust School essentially work on four strategic goals. One is school leadership. Second is pedagogy, so quality of learning and teaching. The third one is uh, student accomplishment and sort of potential maximization. And the fourth one is really around community engagement. So in Malaysia, we have a beautiful education blueprint. It's like the perfect document. You know, they talk about holistic student outcome, not just academic, you know, creative thinking, even bilingual proficiency and something around ethics. They have six student outcomes. Perfect document, but implementation. How are you going to do this, right? So that's when we went in in 2008 and said, okay, let's try and do this together, because the private sector was actually putting in money to demonstrate a model. I think uh, if I, we've probably spent about close to, I don't know, depending on when you do the exchange rate, so about $250 million, I think the last uh, eight, uh, 10 years to demonstrate this model and uh, with that two social impact bonds, first of its kind on education, to raise awareness for this. So fast forward 10 years. So today the donors do change are asking. Your system? yes so we've done we've done we've we've not completed 220 schools because we're still on that journey but we've done 10 years so now we've got our shareholders and donors asking hey is government actually interested to take this on so that you know i can make a call today if i want to continue to put another 100 million into this right okay so we're on we're, we're there So I think one of the learnings that we've had, when you talk to government, they said, you know, thank you very much. I love this program. You could see the impact when you go to schools. It works. It's perfect. But let us do it our way, right? So then you you realize that private sector donors, we are obsessed about quality, but the government mechanism, it's so complex for them. It's the political agenda, is the scale, it's rural urban sort of reach and uh, you know for them it's a quantity game. For us it's a quality game. Sometimes that's where you know we kind of differ. So government says I will do it but I'll do it my way. Program implementers said do not dilute my program you know this is this is typical I love my program I've spent 10 years on this I've put so much money on this don't change it. If you're going to adopt it, adopt it lock, stock barrel. <laughs> if not, don't call it the same name because I don't want to spoil the name of this prog- program implementer. Donor is like, you know, then you reflect and you say, hey, wait a minute, who are we doing this for? Are we doing it for us? Are we doing it for you, the, the, the school or the, you know, we're doing it for the kids. So ultimately, I think, Uh, we need to then think about who wins these investments for as long as the children are getting holistic student better outcomes not just academic outcomes we probably should just continue to walk that journey for as long as we feel that the children are benefiting from it so one of my key learning is actually sometimes we have to always sort of really put the beneficiary in the center of everything because that changes everything as well, your monitoring and evaluation system, your stakeholder engagement, everything changes when the kit is actually in the center of the debate. Because then, you know, you're not so obsessed about power dynamics, you, branding, recognition,
2: okay, ROI, so you're saying, impact. you
3: it's okay, you know, let's compromise. And even compromise to the extent that it may not look like what we set out to, where 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 is that sweet spot yeah I'm so so
1: we're still walking that journey but but so this is where we are and i and and this is the conversations i'm having with program implementers and the ministry of education yeah. because uh what is the price of pulling out there's yeah. no program that's going to reach the kids yeah um so we, we really got to think about this carefully right so for as long as the government say, okay, I will do it, but you know, they said, you know, you guys, private sectors, scaf, you know, heavily scaffolded your programs because you've got deep pockets and you know you could do this, whereas we have capacity issues, capability issues, scale, reaching to the rural areas. So, I suppose we need to kind of try and, and. So that's my epiphany now, like trying to kind of say, I think we need to also look from the perspective of government in wow. terms of. How complex it is for them um, and really you know do not waste the the body of knowledge that has gone in in the last ten years around public school transformation and um, and if we're gonna hand it over to them then continue to engage and support to ena- enable them to pull it off it will never be perfect I suppose yep. it will never be perfect
3: so let me sort of shift that a little bit to John uh, because. You know, th- this evidence question. We've all spent a lot of money and a lot of effort in building up these wonderful programs that are often, you know, small scale, piloted, but they're beautiful, and then, you know, they go to scale, something else happens. Uh, but often, it, those programs that are taken to scale, they're not really measured the way that we did, well, the, the way they were in the beginning when it was this. This small-scale program. So, what happens there? Have you been in a situation where you've been a part of a um, a program that's that's scaled up? What role have you played in that scale? Or you know, it doesn't have to be your particular organisation. Other, you can give me other examples as well. Because I'm, uh, you know, I know that we're all obsessed with this measurement and impact, but it often seems that we're obsessed with the measurement and impact when we've got that control of it. Mm -hmm. We're less Obsessed with measurement impact. Once the sort of like the government has taken it on, even though we're like, well, no, don't take it uh, or do it in this way. But once they've taken it on, and so I'm not sure whether what we did there and what comes out at the end is the same thing, and it's certainly not, or, and it's certainly not measured in the same way. So, do you have any reflections on that? It was a bit of a confusing question. Sorry, it's just I've tried to pull lots of different things in there. <laughs>
4: <laughs> now, let, let me well, uh, let me give you some uh, perspectives. I think. Um, what we are evolving in our understanding is the difference between uh, innovations, pilot development, academic research through to scaled implementation. Uh, and a lot of the challenges we've had in the past is that we've provided grants to small innovative great ideas in order to enable them the next period in their life. Uh, but then what they're doing is they're continuing down a path of such narrow implementation because the method of the innovators' uh, development is done in such a way that they need to be so hands-on that it just cannot be translated through to scale. Similarly, in their academic research context, they're often done with uh, methodologies that require so many... Uh, specific environments to be in place such that the outcomes you're then reading from an evidence point of view, they may be fantastic. They may translate into wonderful child outcomes, but then the academic will say, well, but all of these criteria have to be in place, otherwise the research is invalid. Uh, Well, again, that's not a scalable methodology. So just thinking through that translation of what is the real core essence outcome that you're looking to get and then, really, getting the, as much as possible the, the very few attributable components that are needed in order to achieve that outcome. And just realize that as you translate through to government and work with government in that context, because we often talk in a very dismissive way about governments. I think to the large part, governments do want to see beneficial outcomes for their, uh, for their population. So, uh, engaging them in a way that really narrows down those key components and say, these are the must haves in order to get that outcome and work with them in order to able to uh, get them to a position where they can achieve those must-haves in the very difficult, complicated environment that they're operating in. Uh, So we're working through that at the moment in South Africa as an example.
3: Okay. Um, So I'm just going to ask Mariana one last question, and then I'll open it up. Uh, if people want to ask questions, if you don't, I've still got lots of questions I can get through, so don't <laughs> worry. <laughs> um, but let, let's shift it a little bit, so a little bit of a segue from what John has been saying about, um, and uh, Shohira too, about the role of the private sector together with the, uh, and working with the government and you know how maybe we need to be a little bit more cognizant of their, uh, of their needs and their challenges. But there's, as I'm sure you're all aware, there's a lot of debate uh, that's been going on for a while. But it's sort of like really peaked over the past couple of years on private philanthropy, especially in the education space, and especially in you know maybe the low-cost private schools or the privatisation of education. Um, So I know it's a little bit outside of the early childhood space. But what do you think that the role of philanthropy should be in in public education? Uh, Should they really be going out? Trying to provide alternatives, or should we really be trying to support the existing public system in any way that we can? What's the what's the balance there?
2: Yeah,
3: I think it
5: both. Both ways are possible, right? And they're, to me, goes back to the questions of uh, what people want and where they want their kids to grow, if they, they can pay for it, and it's a private education. If they have a charter school, and that's a great place in their neighborhood, I think at the end of the day, it goes down to the family and, and what they're going to choose. And if they're choosing uh, charter schools, they're choosing uh, private education, and they can afford that, I think it's great. Uh, I think that our role as philanthropists When when it comes to tackling an issue or a matter, I think that people are very driven by location and causes, right? So I mean, either you have the cause that you love or the place that you want to help, because you have different reasons and and backgrounds to go there. So sometimes creating a, a charter school is the case. I used to work for a company that built two schools. In Brazil, mm. and I was uh, in a lot of you know other my peers in the sector would not think that would be the best thing to do, but oh, well obviously I was the CEO there for five years I would defend the model, mm. and and I still do because I think you know you created a a lab of a model of school mm. that could share best practices with the government of what was being done in Brazil, but it was not being done in the public sector, mm. and that. You know, it, it was great for the communities around, and it was a charter school, so it was great for the people in it. It didn't change the life of thousand kids a year. I think that that's the the problem when it, I mean to the model. I think it just changed the lives of a thousand kids. Okay. And that's the the, the,
3: the, the sure.
5: that's the two sides of the story. So it's a great school. It changes, I mean, deeply changes the life of those kids. But it's just a thousand, and Brazil mm. has. Uh, millions of kids. So, uh, that's what you need to understand and and, and choose. At the end of the day, philanthropy is a choice. So, uh, I think that you have to understand what the problems are, see what the perspectives are of what kind of impact you're going to have. But then, you're gonna go back to the debate. Oh, is it a scale? Is scale one? Are we you yeah. know, solving the problem massively yeah.
3: in the world? Advocacy versus exactly.
5: So uh, me, uh, service and, and delivery. I mean, I'm limited to Brazil as a foundation. I can only work in Brazil, yeah. and uh, and even then, Brazil it's a huge uh, world, and then we're dealing with that. So if you have a project in Brazil that it's scalable, that's great. If you don't, you're gonna help that kid deeply, mm-hmm. and I think that that's what you have to be looking at. Whatever it is that you have chosen and to have the impact on that if your project is
3: doing so thank you so we have nine minutes would anybody like to ask any questions we have can we get a mic over there please and please tell us your name and your organization and which country you're from
2: if you'd like name is pinky jane and i'm from the united kingdom and i work at the university of worcester where i train teachers um, I just have a, a sort of a couple of questions really that link together one is this issue of scalability I'm just wondering whether that's a red herring you know we're not producing widgets in an industrialized process which education is bespoke is contextual and whether you know we tie ourselves up in a knot when we talk about scalability um, and whether Schumacher was right small is beautiful and as philanthropists um, my connected sort of question is, should you be supporting with your QDOS and brand name rather than money? So when I look at my right. local area, um, there are lots of projects that are very worthy. And when we partner with them as a university, it gives them the impetus. We don't give them any financial aid, but actually encourages them to have a stronger and bigger voice. So I wonder whether money is not always the solution, but actually recognition of small, beautiful works that are going on will connect together to solve the problem and whether the red herring of scalability should be thrown out the window, really.
3: Thank you. Is there someone that you'd particularly like to answer your question, or can I just pick on anyone? (laughs) Okay, I'm going to pick on John.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I think it's... uh, From my point of view, I think it's and. Uh, I I don't think that... Amplifying the local and enabling the local uh, by uh, recognizing uh, their initiative uh, necessarily needs to come at the uh, exclusion of also sharing and looking to uh, have the, provide access uh, to things that are proven to work elsewhere. And that's, that's what we mean, well at least what, what I mean by scalability. So finding something that uh, has had such an amazing impact uh, on children uh, in one part of the world and finding ways in which that translates, particularly in the area where our focus is, is what we're looking to achieve. Uh, I mean, we have to look at the data. And the data from the the World Bank Report 2018 shows that uh, we do have some challenges with the education systems that we have around the world, that they're failing to develop Uh, children in the context of uh, traditional academic learnings uh, but also in terms of equipping them with the breadth of skills that are needed uh, for the coming future that they're going to emerge into. Uh, So in that context uh, I also think uh, just um, taking a step back and uh, assuming that there will be local solutions to that uh, I think is not necessarily the, the right path. We also need to inject some form of catalytic change uh, that can uh, enable broad scale improvements in education systems around the world.
3: Thank you. Over here, please.
0: First of all, thank you all for the uh, fantastic insights. My name is Sharif Amidi and I'm uh, representing 4.0, Education Innovation Social Enterprise. Now, having sat on the board of several foundations, I truly believe that Gigantism is quite the real problem of, of foundations.
3: Gigantism,
0: sorry. So gigantism. Oh, okay. Uh, in other words, as brilliant. foundations grow, it seems that the staff are growing even more exponentially, and they end up turning into self-perpetuating uh, our seeking powerhouses, and they become no different than the government. Now. I'll just pick an example here. I'm gonna pick on the Gates Foundation. I love the Gates Foundation. In fact, we do a lot of work with them. But if you look in the past 10 years, uh, they nearly doubled their assets, but their staff grew over tenfold. Now what I would like to ask each and uh, every one of you is, what do you do to avoid this gigantism and and uh, kind of focus on your role as a foundation uh, and by the way, this is regardless of, of the spectrum, whether we're talking about education or climate change or whatever sure. cause uh, you'd like to pick. But in, in, in the case of education, accountability and, and stakes are much, much higher since we are impacting the lives of people. So what do you do to avoid this gigantism? And uh, how do you focus on your real mission of the foundation, uh, which consists of uh, basically ensuring that. Uh, and honing the rules of the markets operation.
3: Thank you. That's a great question. I'm going to click on Shahira, Shahira to take now. that one because she's a big, gigantic
1: organization <laughs> in Malaysia. <laughs> Actually, quite small. Uh, there, there are only 20 of us in the, in the organization. That's an excellent question. That's the other thing that, well, nothing keeps me awake at night, but you know, the other thing that I think about a lot because about uh, more than Sixty percent of the staff at the foundation, at Hasana Foundation, came from the private sector. So you know the way in which we are wired is just so different from the social sector. The whole first year of our existence is about rewiring and unwiring, relearning, and all of that because you know you you know consultancy mindset, report writing, you know how do you write your it's just crazy. So, um, and we've got partners, you know, saying, it's just, it's like we said, it's tough love, you know, guys, you, got, you, you guys got to kind of do all of these things. So I think it's, it's an excellent question. It's something that uh, every foundation, I think, needs to think about. Um, and one of the things that I've learned really is, again, you know, going back to that concept of putting your beneficiary at the centre of everything, because uh, when we we consciously trying to do that, it really adjusted our monitoring and evaluation processes, the demand that we required from our partners, just in terms of reporting and KPIs and log frames and impact assessment journeys and just all of these things. Um, just the application process for the grant, goodness. You know, they said we need, to use, it's like we have to write a thesis you know, to apply for, for grants. So, we're trying to kind of lighten it without losing the accountability and the sense of responsibility of our partners it's a it's an ongoing thing Um, one of the things we kind of benchmark the foundation is that um, 90% of our funding goes to program and only 10% goes to cost so that's the other sort of very strict you know every time that kind of pops up we need to keep asking ourselves how do we keep it below uh, 10% or below Right, Right. so then we're not too
3: too big. We've just got a couple of minutes, and I do want to make sure that if there's burning questions, that we take them, and then I'm going to let you answer them, whatever the questions are. (laughs) <laughs> no, please. Uh, I just
5: wanted to jump in this because I come from the corporate world too, but I don't want to. I, I don't want you to have the answer that you know having someone from the corporate world is the case. Because, it, it, but it is that vision of effectiveness. So we we have a similar approach. If you have the indexes of and you monitor them, and and my efficiency one is is close to what she explained. You know, what is your administrative? What is your impact? And, and you know, think, the thing is, to me, we don't we don't have standards. We're very different from each other. So uh, uh, the way we compare ourselves is still. A trick, even if we have transparency and all of that good stuff, but I think that you know there, there's a uh, there's a lot of room within our sector to uh, find to refine that a little bit. What would could be standards that we could look at each other and have that efficient efficiency measure, and I think that that's lacking.